I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is someone you may know very, very well because you heard him many times, but you didn't hear him speak in words. You heard him speak in music. And so you may actually not recognize that it was him. One of my favorite composers, Max Richter, or Richter if you want to say it in English, but Richter is the mother tongue uh, of his original language. Max writes beautifully crafted, very intelligent as a matter of fact, works of music that are very, very disarming in their honesty, very inducive of reflection, if you want. And he really does it to communicate a message, a a social message most of the time. Despite the underlying sophistication, you know, his music seems to be very accessible, if you want, to all. And I, I believe that his expression through his music has reached all of us because he surpassed a billion streams and a million albums sold. Max has also become an influential composer, not not just in his solo albums, but in films and television. And so he created the brilliant score for the Golden Globe and European Film Academy Award winner, The Waltz with Bashir, which if you haven't seen, is quite a touching and a bit intense, but an amazing, amazing story about the invasion of Israel to uh, Lebanon in 1982. You know, he composed the score for HBO's cult drama, The Leftovers. He composed for Black Mirror, for Taboo, among uh, many, many others. Ten years in the making, Max's latest work is Voices. And actually the reason why I wanted so much to host Max with us today. Voices brings together Uh, recordings of people in over 70 countries with an incredibly inspiring background music reading the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with a massive and a very unusual orchestra that is almost flipped upside down where some of the scarce instruments are actually used a lot more often. This uh, piece of work really, really inspired me in many, many different ways. His uh, second part of Voices, Voices 2, is releasing this month. And I hope that by the time we release this podcast, you would have the opportunity to enjoy this incredible, incredible work. So I hope you are a fan already. If you're not, I'm about to introduce you to an amazing being that really touches me with his music, Max Richter. Max, so I I say it's such a pleasure to meet you, honestly, because you're in my life, but I actually never, first of all, I've never met you, but I also don't meet you. I meet your music, which is quite different, right? You know, when you have a band or a a lead singer or someone who is on stage and you picture them and you sort of have an image of them, I think I know you because you've been in my head for a very long time. And you're actually quite expressive in the way you say things, even though I have no idea why I understand that. I don't know why I feel sad when I hear something and feel inspired when I hear something else. You must be speaking a language that I forgot that I learned, right? 
Right. But I'm really curious to know you first as a person. I mean, if you'd be open to share a little bit with us, not the composer, also the composer, but tell us about you. Born in Germany, moved to England. What are you? Right. Well, what am I? I'm a human being living in the early part of the 21st century. I was born in 1966. And on the day of 1966, the number one record in the UK was the Walker Brothers, The Sun Ain't Gonna mm. Shine Anymore, which is a great song. I'm always quite interested in what was number one when people were born. I think that's a fun little game. I will absolutely investigate that. You okay. need to look that up immediately. Um, uh-huh. And I'm a composer. My life has always been in some way about music. It's interesting what you were saying about being spoken to in a language that maybe you'd forgotten you'd learned. This is what captivated me about music when I was a tiny child. I heard something that I later discovered was the music of Bach. Uh, my parents just playing records, you know, in the house. They weren't musical people, but they, they had records. So I heard this sound, and um, this sound spoke to me, as you mentioned. And, of course, it was beautiful sounds and very exciting and very engaging. But also I, I felt like there was a logic or a governing principle or a language. And I was amazed at this idea that these sounds could have something behind them, which was sort of making them more than just sounds. So that really started me with music. And I just fell in love with the sensation of it and the experience of being in music. Uh, for me, this was like... Um, kind of hypnotic state almost. It was incredibly powerful, had a tremendous effect on me. And it became, it became really central to my life, one way and another, from, from that part, from that moment, you know. Um, first of all, as, you know, as a listener, somebody who loved listening to music. I played all my parents' records. And then later on, as a participant in this thing, this music thing, you know, learning the piano and then studying music formally and all of these things. And I think, probably like a lot of artists, it became like my raft, my boat, to sort of cross the sea of life on, you know? Um, it's interesting. I, I feel very privileged to have found something like that. I was talking with my kids the other day, and it was, you know, they're sort of coming to... Uh, two of them are at an age when they're trying to figure out what to do. And I... I realized that, you know, I never really had to ask myself that question, what to do, because I knew the answer, you know, from early childhood, you know, that I wanted to do something with music. I wanted to, you know, compose or write music or, you know, be involved with it in some way. So in a way that that sort of made things in, in some ways quite easy for me, because I've just always, I didn't have to deal with complex decisions <laughs> of that sort. <laughs> you just had to compose amazing music, no complex just decisions compose, there. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, I had one job, right? I had one job. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, that's sort of how it, how it all came together for me. Aside from that, I'm a father, I'm a husband. My partner, Yulia, and I have been together what, nearly 30 years. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And um, we were kids when we met, really. She was working in the theatre as a director. She's a fascinating person because her background is actually anthropology. 
and politics and sort of sociology, all of that sort of part of the world. But her family is a family of artists, really, architects, filmmakers. Her mother is a, an amazing, very distinguished uh, art photographer. So she has a sort of very, always had a very creative mind and uh, way of being. And we met at that time, she was making sort of, um, I guess it was, it was theatre, but it was sort of theatre as social activism. And um, we met at that time and um, kind of been together ever since and have been talking ever since about the things that infuse us <laughs> and make us tick. Do you believe it's that this sort of joint passion is necessary for a relationship to thrive and succeed and last? Well, I think you need, you do need a common space of some sort. I mean, of course, it's nice to have, you know, contrasts in a relationship and you need, in a way, differences are interesting, right? But you do need a kind of a fundamental shared space of some sort, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been our sort of, our, I guess, our kind of socio-political orientation and our, our ideas about creativity and, you know, what that can do in the world and what that is in the world. Yeah, I have to say that you definitely strike me as much as a social activist as you are a composer and a musician. And, and there is, um, I don't know if that offends you that I say that, but I, I don't think that you compose things just to make sounds at all. No, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because composing is about ordering sound and it's on one level a very intellectual practice, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of sort of cognitive strategy, planning, thinking, technique, if you like. But for me, you know, since I sort of started to do my own real work, which is really memory house, it's around 2000, that kind of time. It's not really that aspect, the sort of cognitive, if you like, composerly aspect, is something which I, which I don't put in the foreground of my work. You know, my work is, you know, that's a tool to get me to a situation where I can tell a story I'm, I think is important and I want to tell. So, yeah, um, I mean, I don't, as you say, I don't just make sounds. I'm interested in music for the effect it can have in the world. Yeah, the effect can be massive. I mean, I want to dedicate a big part of, of our conversation to voices, if you don't mind. But, but before that, I want to touch on two that are quite impactful. I would love to, to understand how you ended up creating this. So sleep for me is an amazing statement. So sleep for our listeners who may not have heard sleep is and what, eight and a half hours? It, it was the longest ever yes. broadcast of one musical piece on the BBC, right? That's right. Eight and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, eight and a half hours of you almost protesting, saying this is not, this life we're living is not how it's supposed to be. And that's a mega statement. That's like a life-changing statement for the world we're living in, a world where depression is going through the roof. Uh, you know, burnout is going through the roof and now anxiety and stress and all of that. How do you, I'm sorry to say, but how do you have the courage to do that? It's like, I remember when, you know, Queen wanted an 11 minute piece on uh, Bohemian Rhapsody or, you know, the whole idea was like, no, no, that's not the norm. Eight and a half hours and such a strong statement. How did that happen? 
I mean, sleep goes back quite a long way, in a sense. Um, the most part of the writing was around 2013 and 14. And this was around the time when 4G moved the internet sort of into our pockets, sort of proper, real internet into our pockets, which meant social media and everything was there 24-7. Now, obviously, that's very convenient. <laughs> but... Um, it struck me that this also presented big psychological challenge because it basically meant that all our waking hours were potentially being populated with, well, data of one sort or another, stimulus of one sort or another, interaction of one sort or another. And, you know, that's great on one level, but on another level, I felt like that was going to erode our ability to really connect authentically to ourselves because we were connecting to all this other stuff. And Yuli and I talked about this quite a bit. And we had a couple of, in a way, as is often the case with us, you know, we had this sort of parallel intuition that it would be interesting to make a piece on this topic. And not only on the topic, but actually a piece with a kind of utility dimension, a, <laughs> a piece of music as a tool or you might even say a kind of a remedy for this mm -hmm. challenge. And, I mean, creativity can have this. It can have this effect of taking you out of your world and putting you somewhere else for a moment. A novel can do that, or a painting, or, a, you know, a piece of music. And uh, so I wanted to make this piece which could function as a, a big sort of pause button yeah. And it did. Yeah. And we talked about it as a kind of protest music, in a way, because we live in a an age where there is a sort of, of course, there are, you know, there's a lot of sort of critiques going on of, of all kinds of social systems. But broadly, we have this sort of consensus view, which is a sort of neoliberal production and consumption view. And a lot of so-called innovation is really just the R&D cycles of really big corporations. That's, that's not, you know, and we actually measure time in that way. Our idea of, mm -hmm. you know, the past and the future is about different kinds of products. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, exactly. You know, and, and I think this degrades us, you know. I mean, we're more than that, actually. So we wanted to make a piece which would allow us to just interrupt that sort of hamster-in-a-wheel experience and just reconnect to the fundamentally human things and when we're very busy and very stimulated it's harder to do that so a big piece of music a piece of music which almost works like a landscape for you to dream into it can have that effect and it had that potential so that's really what sleep was about so help me understand why it worked i am an engineer i'm a mathematician so like you i understand structures and i understand how how you can put something together to appear in a certain way or to function in a certain way. But once again, I'm quite puzzled because sleep had that exact impact on me. It makes me feel, yeah, it's time to slow down. And the whole idea of slow-mo here is to try to tell people, hey, by the way, this is going to kill all of us. If it's not going to kill all of us, it's going to affect our society so negatively. Slow down, slow down, right? But you seem to be able to use instruments just as as you speak English, it's almost like one of your native languages. How do I get the feeling that this is what you want to say when you haven't spoken a single word? 
Right. Well, I mean, music is in a way my native language. So, <laughs> <laughs> is it? Oh, that's a big statement. I, I do feel that. You know, I feel like I'm better at communicating musically than I am verbally. I feel the same about mathematics, actually. Right. So I, if you allow me, I wouldn't speak words at all. Yes. There's actually a lovely yeah. uh, comment that um, a friend of mine, Marcus de Sotoy, uh, made, where he says that um, music is the art of patterns and mathematics is the science of patterns. Totally. Isn't that a beautiful connection, isn't it? It is so beautiful, yeah. So, I mean, there is a lot of, there's a lot going on, if you like, under the hood in sleep to make it have the effect that it has. First of all, it's very minimal in the sense that it's, the musical material is very reduced. It's two sets of variations essentially interlinked, more or less. And I did that because I thought if people are going to go to sleep, they need to feel safe. And in order to feel safe, we need to know where we are. So the piece of music, it uses hmm. a lot of repetition and recognizable structures recur. So if you wake up at 3 a.m., you're sort of going to recognize where you are musically. So in other words, hmm. you're safe. The next thing is that the tempo is very steady. So it uses this, um, this thing called rhythmic enchainment. So basically your physiology joins up with the tempo of the music over time. It's 40 BPM, which is really slow. So it's a kind of resting pulse rate, very low resting pulse rate. And it uses a lot of subsonic tones, very low frequency tones. And it uses those for really for two reasons. One is that I love those frequencies. That's purely poetic. That's purely, <laughs> purely creative. That's just, there's something special about those sounds. And um, it's to do with the fact that they're in some way, they feel like they're bigger than us. Those very low tones, which we cannot make with the orchestra really, or we can do it, but only very, very quietly. Those tones have in a way been revealed by the synthesizer and the computer. And of they've made it, been made accessible to us. So there's a sort of octave below the bottom of the double bass where there's all this magic. And it's the magic that we hear in a thunderstorm or in the ocean or, you know, these sort of large-scale events which are sort of bigger than us. So there's a kind of poetic association with those tones and those tones affect your skeleton, your muscles, everything. You don't just hear them, you feel them. So they operate on you in a, in a quite a special way, I think. And they sort of, they bypass our frontal lobes and they just sort of go deep inside us. They also, and this was something I, which is sort of, again, it's a, it's a sort of conceptual idea, but also a real thing, is that that whole spectrum of sleep has almost, it basically doesn't have any, hardly any high frequencies in it at all for about seven hours. Wow. And the spectrum that sleep has mirrors or mimics the spectrum that the unborn child hears inside the mother. So before you were a person, you have a kind of oral imprint and it's, it's just there, you know. So basically 
The whole of this piece feels like it's a sort of amniotic music which surrounds you. And then around seven hours, the music brightens up, the spectrum opens up very slowly. So at the end, you have a kind of full spectrum. So it's like you're born at the end of this piece into daylight, if you like. And then towards the end, it, you know, it sort of opens up and the lights kind of slowly come on. It's like an acoustic sunrise. That's an incredible description of a massive piece of art. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of, that's some of the, the stuff that's going on. So you see, this is why I wanted to meet you. Because, you know, this is not just you pushing keys on the synthesizer. No this way. Is, there is a lot going on underneath in, in the work. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, when I made the piece, you know, I was very concerned that it should be not just tones. It needs to have a musical kind of rigor, uh, a musical architecture which works as music. Because otherwise, otherwise you don't have a sense of, like, living through that piece. You know, you're just hearing tones. And um, they may be beautiful, but they're not, they're not carrying you with them. And I think when you, when you engage with a piece of music which has a kind of legible structure, then you're carried with it mentally. Is this why I suffer so much when I hear modern music post-America's Got Talent era? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I mean, I think there, are, there may be lots of reasons for that. I think mainstream pop music has a kind of a sonic fingerprint which is about um, attention-seeking, basically. It's uh -huh. like a toddler. It's always sort of poking you in the ear to try and mm. make you stay pay attention. engaged, pay attention. Which is, um, you know, I mean, that's one thing music can do. But obviously it's, mm. it's really, in a way, the opposite of <laughs> what sleep is doing. Can I take you back to sleep for a second? Because I think we're on the same mission, right? So as social activists, the whole idea here is I'm trying to say, look, I've lived the life of a fast-paced executive, traveling, leading, making money, and I'm asking people to slow down. I'm asking people, you know, as I always say, regardless of how busy you are today, there is always time to slow down, right? Now, does it frustrate you that, I mean, of course, I'll put as much of my life in it, as much as I can, but in an interesting way, in, my, in the background of my mind, I'm like, yeah, but... Will we ever change that? It seems that technology is almost taking us down a cliff so quickly hmm. that it's getting worse and worse and worse. How do you feel about that as an activist? Well, I think it's, it's a very challenging situation because the incentive to speed up is pretty much wired into the large-scale structures that we've built, by which I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of you know, corporate structures, shareholder value, all of that stuff. It's very, very difficult to unbuild things like that without, yeah, impacts that are going to be very difficult for people to justify in boardrooms. And that's where we need the changes to happen. I mean, it's interesting that, um, you know, we've just been through this whole situation in the UK with Brexit and la la la, you know, yeah. sort of... Um, there was a sort of weaponization of a resentment against Europe, bureaucracy yes. and all of that. You know, it's, it's, all, it's all a kind of a fantasy, really. But um, 
it was interesting that there wasn't a kind of um, a commensurate sort of focus on sort of industry and corporate cultures because they have a much bigger impact on our lives than, you know, politicians Correct. do. You know, it's just that we, we sort of, it's happened almost and we haven't noticed it. And uh, it's sort of when, when one's talking about it, it sounds like a kind of evil plan. And of course, it isn't an evil plan. I mean, it's just people being people and everyone's trying to do their best and people want to succeed in their jobs and people want to feed their families and companies want to prosper and look after their employees, all of these things. But the outcome and the end effect of it on an individual person, on an individual level, yeah, it's, um, it can be pretty, pretty destructive, I think. So it really is. Yeah. So it's a challenge. It's really a challenge. I mean, one of the challenges I have, believe it or not, is my next book is called Scary Smart. And it talks about how artificial intelligence is going to even accelerate us more and, and perhaps even hand over some of that control away from the human executives to the managing machines, if you want, which we can see so often. And in an interesting way, it becomes, I don't know if it, it will get to the point where it will go beyond human abilities to stretch ourselves anymore, because I think we're at that cusp, we're at that limit already. Yes, I, I, I think so. And I, I mean, I think one of the challenges really is that um, obviously our bodies don't know it's the 21st century. <laughs> exactly. We were made for something else, right? We're apes. We're made for basically sitting around. And, you know, if you look at our ape communities, you know, sit around, yeah. do enough to feed yourself. And that, that's kind of it, you know, that's it. Yeah, yeah. When um, we're putting ourselves under extraordinary strain. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think AI is um, obviously another challenge, you know. Yeah, and we're, we're sort of outsourcing a lot of our faculties and maybe without thinking it through too, too well. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Part of that challenge is, as you said, is we put ourselves under a lot of strain and a lot of inhumane conditions. And when I watched Waltz with Bashir, oh my God, I mean, that, that really grips you. It just pulls you into a story that is quite, I don't know how to say, vicious almost is the word I felt. And your music was a, a big part of it. Right. So it's not just the animation, but the whole story, the whole the fact that it's a true story and then your music on top of it. How did you do that? Were you sent an animation and then said, put a score on top of this? Or were you part of the emotional experience? How did that happen? Well, that was a wonderful process, really. I'd never written a film score and I sort of not. It wasn't something I was trained to do or had ever really thought about. Ari sent me a, an email out of the blue, really, and just uh, said, you know, here I am, I've written this script, and I wrote the script listening to your music, so, you know, now you have to <laughs> write the score for the film. <laughs> so um, I had a look at, they just made a tiny 90-second clip of this, uh, of this extraordinary material, and I was just, you know, immediately sort of sold on it, really. I just thought it was beautiful and really striking and, you know, revolutionary idea, really, and an important story. So, yeah, it was just a great pleasure to work on it. And in terms of process, 
because it's an animation, it you know moves forward very slowly. And they also had a <laughs> tiny team. You know, they had really mm. almost no money, and Ari mortgaged his house to make it. You know, and there was there was a handful of very dedicated people, basically. And um, yeah, it just progressed slowly over a period of months. He sent me then the full script, and I wrote the main themes for the music just off the page from the, reading the script. Uh, and then they, you know, I made sort of computer mock-ups of those and they, then the animators were sort of listening to those while they were drawing. And um, it was a nice kind of feedback sort of conversational process. And that went on for, a, I guess, about a year or something. And um, yeah. You get to internalize the emotion when you're doing this? I mean, did you feel the pain of the... Yeah, I mean... The massacre. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's um, it's a very powerful and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a very moving story and very painful one. And um, those aspects of a story in any film, and obviously with, in the case of Waltz, I mean, those are really what I'm looking to connect to musically. Those are the sort of... You know, the big questions of a film, the big questions of a story, and the emotions and uh, feelings those evoke are really one of the important things that music can do in cinema. And uh, I mean, Waltz with Bashir was just, I mean, I just thought it was an outstanding project. I mean, absolutely beautiful. So let, let's move from there. All of the emotion, all of the, of the engagement that you create with as you said, your native language, music, then when you come to voices, you actually add the words. Yeah. And I have to say, when it was the first part, first, I don't know what to call it, the piece of the album, I was like, oh, all right. You know, a lady reading the Declaration of Human Rights. You go to the second piece and you're completely drawn in. You know, another voice now is reading the Declaration of Human Rights, Article 1, as I remember. And I've read that a million times. Like, you know, it's something that matters to me. It's something that's important to me. I've read it. I feel totally differently now. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's, it's almost to me like I've listened to it for the first time. Right. Okay? Okay. Which I have to admit to you got me thinking. It's like there must be something around our ability to propagate positive messages in the world that has to do with the structure, the architecture of the sound on which it's laid. But, but let's first talk about why would you do that? I mean, why Voices? There is now Voices 2 is coming, right? I, yeah, the second part of it, yeah. Yeah, so when is that? It's actually this week, yeah. It's actually this oh, week. Oh, is it? Fantastic, yeah, yeah. all right. Yeah, so why Voices in the first place? Where did that project come from? What does it mean to you? Well, yeah, Voices comes really out of, again, conversations Yulia and I were having about, like, the way things were heading. This is a piece which was written sort of towards the tail end of 2019. So in the sort of, you know, sort of late crazy days of Trump. And, um, <laughs> you know, all of the other stuff which had been going on. And we started to get this sense that you have this, this big historical moment of the Second War, obviously an utter disaster. And out of that in 1948, 1949 comes this blueprint for a better, fairer, kinder, more just world. An amazing achievement, something which, broadly speaking, most nations signed up to. 
might be one of humanity's greatest achievements in a way, you know, consensus after such an extraordinary disaster. And um, this felt like a good thing to connect to and to remind ourselves about, given what was going on. Um, you know, we've had a sort of return to sort of totalitarian politics and xenophobia and all kinds of... It felt like history has been going in, into reverse for the last few years. And we wanted to do something about that. We wanted to just try and offer something positive, something hopeful, something to remind ourselves that, you know, there's more than one way um, for the future to be. And uh, Voices is that project. So, as you mentioned, it's, it's really all about the text of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The first voice you hear is the voice of Eleanor Roosevelt, who was super uh, important in the framing of the Declaration. Amazing woman. So she reads the preamble. And then I wanted to use a young voice for the actual articles, because to me, you know, the Declaration is about potential future. You know, a future which is, in a way, ours to make that time we haven't lived yet, what's that going to look like? <laughs> and uh, so Kiki Lane reads the articles, very beautiful, young-sounding voice. And then the other thing is that we wanted to really embed the universality and the sort of democratic principle into the structure of the piece. So we invited people just on social media to read articles uh, in their native tongue and so we got hundreds of submissions, and I just sort of made a, a kind of a landscape of voices for this music to then kind of flow through. So you have a sense of a kind of a, a community of readers, in it, if you like, who are kind of delivering this text. I loved, loved the parts when I actually didn't understand what was being said. Me too. It's so wonderful. It was incredible. It? And you, yeah. hear, you hear these words and you hear the feeling people are putting into it. And it's so exactly. moving, isn't it? So moving. Yeah, so the music is, is really engaging a certain feeling. And then you layer on top of this someone that feels that feeling. Yeah. You have no idea what they're saying in, in spoken language. Exactly. Yeah, but it just touches you so deeply. It really does, yeah. There's something so basic about just a human voice reading something mm. which clearly matters to them very much. And <laughs> even though you don't, 75% of the texts on there, I don't, I, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. Did you have anyone vet through them just yes, to make sure did. that they were not reading something? <laughs> we did. I mean, I just thought, look, we better just... Make sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, one of them would be saying something like, all of those musicians, oh man, the noise they make, right? <laughs> it would have been too nice easy, right? In, 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 in Uzbekistani or whatever that is. And so what will Voices 2, the part 2, be all about? Well, it's really, it's a continuation of the project. So, yeah. so yeah. it's almost like the B-side of an album. So the first part has all the texts and it ends with this piano and violin piece, Mercy. Uh, mm -hmm. And then the second part has no texts. It has musical spaces really to dream into. So it's almost like you're given all the information at the beginning and then it opens the door to kind of dream the future into existence. That's really what the second part is all about. You inspired me with something that I have to ask if you meant it. So, as I said, I read that Declaration of Human Rights, of course, and 
And when I heard voices the first time, the thing that came to mind when the young lady started to read the Article 1, she said, all human beings are equal, da, 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 da. And it just hit me so much when I heard it that way. Why are we saying all human beings? Why is it not all beings? And, and I don't know if, if this is something you meant at all. Well, it's interesting. Yes, it's an interesting thing. Um, I mean, the, the text of the Declaration has been questioned and revised and worked on, both by the UN and, of course, by all kinds of other individuals yeah, and, and organizations. Mm. And in fact, this phrase, all human beings, is, uh, is kind of historical. That's in the original version. So I wanted to kind of honor that, in a way, that original intention. Although you're right, it, it should really be all beings. And, and there are things that later on, which I've actually changed. Uh, oh. <laughs> from, uh, you Ooh. know, for, for example, it's, um, you know, the pronouns are all male later on in the text. And so it, instead of a man can do this, da, 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 I just replaced that with everyone. So actually mm. what happens is later on you get this repetition of everyone. And everyone becomes yes, this I, word, I which just comes round and round, and it sort of it becomes like a sort of mantra. So I did make a few changes. I mean, I, what I've said is that the text is adapted from the Declaration rather than it is the Declaration. Mm. Um, it's a fascinating um, and very lively sort of area of debate. You know what this text it should really actually is. be minute by minute, but I think that's. You know, that's great, actually. It's provoking, questioning. I think I need to reference you. When I, so I wrote a paragraph, in, again, in, in my work about artificial intelligence, to say that when we sort of differentiate the human being as a separate being, it allows us to do horrendous things. We give ourselves the right of mobility, but we restrict chickens from that. You know, we give the, ourselves the right of life. Or, you know, we say no um, torture, right? But we treat other beings that way. And my aim of it was to say, and, you know, we have those non-biological, although very smart beings coming on the planet. Are we going to discriminate against them or should we include them? And the question for me was, would we want to make it not human right, but I don't know what to call it, autonomous being, right? You know, if you're, if you're a being that has a life and needs to, you know, you should have the right to live. And uh, I wouldn't have got that inspiration if it wasn't in the music. So right. I don't know what you do, you little magician, you. It's <laughs> <laughs> something that just clicks. Yeah, well, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah I mean... Do you still are... record on, on tape? I record as much as possible on tape. Sometimes it's not possible. But most of the, all the solo records, apart from Sleep, <laughs> mm. have been recorded. Sleep was impossible just because mm. it's so long, because you can only yeah, 15 yeah. minutes a roll on tape, you know, it's just impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and actually Voices was recorded mostly digitally, a little bit of tape here and there, mm. but mostly digitally, mm. just with large scale projects the track counts just become so big that it's it's difficult mm. to to mm. keep it all I heard you I heard you once say that that when you go digital when you turn music into data it loses texture and this actually is my my closing question for you because that word just hit me so much so now you're speaking with with sounds and you see it as a language 
I see the patterns, and now you're saying there is texture. They're very uh, tactile, right? Yes, I think it is. It, tactile is a very good word for um, uh, sort of my feeling about this. Um, yeah, and digital and analog media are very different. They really are. You know, the medium is the message. They are different things. Tape feels, and I, you know, I'm saying feels immediately. It feels <laughs> like it's a storytelling medium. It's a narrative medium. It's something very mediated. It's something non-linear. It has a kind of almost organic quality. You know, there's magnetism and there's heat and there's like things being pushed around, little atoms and, you know, it's all very <laughs> haptic and uh, it's inaccurate. So it feels like a living thing. You know, all of those things are almost biological, if you like. It feels like that. And it, it feels like a medium where you can tell a story. Digital media is a little different. Um, it has a different philosophical position, a different psychological position. It's about, you could contrast it by saying that, you know, analog recording is kind of tells you a story and digital recording is more like measurement of <laughs> phenomena, measurement of phenomena, mm. you know? Now that sounds in a way cold. It isn't actually necessarily cold. It's just a little different. Um, mm. It's, um, they, they have different qualities. I think it's horses for courses, as we say in, in the UK, you know, it depends what you want to do. And actually, often I end up working digitally because it's kind of impossible to do what I would like to do in the analog domain. And that's fine, you know, because really the ultimate test is how does it all make you feel? What is the intensity? What's the kind of, the kind of physical, physiological impact of the thing? It feels amazing, Max. It feels amazing every time. It's like, man, I would urge you to not sleep and just compose all the time. You know, <laughs> I, I, I asked that question. I asked that question because my daughter, you know, Aya, who's a very talented artist and a, a very, very serious photographer, mm -hmm. just still uses film. Right. And, you know, me being the techie, I constantly go like, Aya, come on. And she says, no, it has a life life to it. it you know it's it's sort of like you're taking the picture but the film is contributing its own life to it right that's exactly right which is uh, yeah uh, you know of course every now and then one film goes wrong and the pictures are lost and then i jump in and i go like yes remember <laughs> remember digital here's a beautiful <laughs> sensor for you yes <laughs> exactly there you go um max I, i really don't know what to tell you it's such a pleasure to actually see you in person, connect to your being in person and realize that it's almost identical to your music. It is so... <laughs> well, that's something. <laughs> so, it's, it's so reflective, so reflective, so uh, deep thinking and so expressive. And it's really so interesting that you do that with music all the time. I don't know what to say, but thank you so much for the time. Thank you for all that you do. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, it's really nice talking to you been great same here yeah absolutely yeah to understand that music can be so linguistic that it can touch the heart without a single word i think is uh, so beautiful we humans are such a complicated being uh i hope you enjoyed this as much as i did 
If you did, then please share it with your friends who love music. Uh, rate the podcast five stars so that you can help me reach as many more people as I can. I am so grateful for the kind messages that you send me. Uh, it really touches my heart and keeps me going. Do, however, send me recommendations on things you want me to improve or things you want me to do differently. Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, M Gaudet on Twitter, and Mo.Gaudet.Official on Facebook. Yeah, and uh, listen to sleep. Uh, sleep is going to get you to slow down a little. I mean, internalize the message uh, that we actually do need to slow down. And yeah, as I always tell you, regardless of how busy you are today, there's always, always a chance for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.